Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and join me in turning to Ephesians chapter 3 third chapter of the letter to the church at Ephesus. If you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 814. So we continue our study of this letter. The first three chapters are really laying out the doctrinal foundation for the practical applications that come in the last three chapters. And we have been looking at, at this book for the last couple of months and trust that it is an encouragement to us. About 30 years ago, my wife and I purchased a home in Troy, Michigan, where I was serving as a youth pastor. When we looked at this home, we, we liked the location, we liked the exterior of the home, and yet when we entered the house, we found it to have a very workable floor plan. We thought it was comfortable for our growing family at that time, but the decor was not our style. One of the bedrooms was painted bright blue, including the ceiling. Another bedroom was a bright, bright green, almost a chartreuse green, and the ceiling was also green. Uh, that just wasn't what we would have as our decor. Now, now, if I just described your home, I'm sure it's lovely. It's probably very cheerful, and I, I'm, that, that's wonderful. But that wasn't our style. And, and so when we, when we closed on the home and the former owners vacated, we actually scheduled a couple of days that we could get in there before we moved in and do some painting. And we wanted the bedrooms a little more neutral, that was more acceptable to us. And so I went to Sears, went to their paint department, and they had some paint. They said, this guarantees to cover in one coat. I thought, uh-uh, <laughs> you haven't seen what I'm painting. And so I said, so what happens when it doesn't cover in one coat? They said, just bring the empty cans back, we'll give you more paint. I said, well, this is a deal because I know I'm going to need the extra paint. So I went in, I, we, we painted, we followed their dimensions of how to spread it and all, and it didn't cover. And so I went back, they gave me more paint, we went back and painted again. And we're able to change the colors of those rooms. And so we, we then moved into the house. But even then, it really wasn't completely the way we wanted it. And so over the next couple of months, we made other changes. We, we painted the exterior of the house. We, we highlighted some of the architectural accents that were part of this home. Uh, but most of the changes we did were internal. We recarpeted a number of the rooms, the bedroom, the family room, the living room. We, we added some wallpaper in the office. We did some changes to the kitchen. We put a parquet floor in the entryway. Uh, over the next couple of years, we redid one of the bathrooms and, and did some more updating. And then finally, we, we wallpapered the, the hall going up the stairs. And at that point, it was really how we wanted it. We were at home. And then we sold it the next day. <laughs> 
So we weren't in it very long after it got that way. But while it was short-lived, the house finally reflected our tastes, our comfort. It had our mark. We were at home. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul, we come to Paul's second prayer in this letter. And part of this prayer is Paul is praying that Christ would be at home in the hearts of believers. That he would be settled down in their lives. That, that they would genuinely know the experiential aspect of, of Christ's love and then demonstrate that to others. And what I want us to consider this morning is really asking that question, is Christ at home in your life? I want us to consider this prayer and see how that is taking place. Is Christ at home in your life? So if you have your Bibles open, follow with me. We're going to read verses 14 through 19 of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the spiritual truths that we need for our lives. We pray that we would not simply be hearers, but doers. Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things out of your word and apply them personally to grow in Christ-likeness. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen. As we look at this passage this morning, I want us to see that that when we participate in ministry-motivated prayer, our focus is going to be on spiritual growth and Christ-likeness. This, as I mentioned, is the second prayer in the, the book of Ephesians. And, and verse 14 is actually picking up where Paul began in verse 1, but then he, he went back to talking about the mystery that he'd already been, been sharing. And so verse 1 began, For this reason I, Paul, and then he begins talking about that mystery again. Now in verse 14 he says, For this reason I, bow my knees to the Father. The statement of Paul's posture in praying probably doesn't grab our attention, but it really should. Because this was not the customary posture for Jews when they prayed. Normally, they would pray standing. If you go to Israel, if you go to the Wailing Wall, you see that. You see them standing there before that wall. That that it's not normal that they would bow the knee. But we find this stated four times in the New Testament, twice in Romans. We find it here in Ephesians, and then in Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And there's an aspect of the emotion that overwhelms Paul that causes him to fall before the Lord. And he continues to be amazed at what God is doing. This has been building through this, these first several chapters, and this really is a climactic section of this book. In chapter 1, Paul had identified God as the source and sovereign of our redemption. 
that we're saved by the will of God, for the pleasure of God, and to bring glory to God. In chapter 2, God's glory is seen not just in our redemption, but also in the reconciliation as he brings Jews and Gentiles together in a new creation, a new humanity, the church, the body of Christ. This was the mystery that had not been seen in the Old Testament was now revealed. And then when it comes to chapter 3, Paul is amazed not only that Gentiles have equal access to God as the Jews, but that God would use him, Paul, somebody who had persecuted the church, that he was saved. He mentions that in chapter 3, verse 8. And then he's called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so he's, he's just amazed, which brings him to this point of humility. Now, understanding, just again, the context of what's taking place, there are several stages of the revelation that are being laid out here. In in chapter 3, verses 3 through 10, we find this. The first stage is that God reveals the mystery to Paul. We see that in verse 3. He says, by revelation, he made known to me the mystery. Paul then shares that mystery. He preaches to the Gentiles. We see that in verses 8 and 9 as he, he, re, he informs them of the church. He informs the world that all may know, he says in these verses. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 10, it continues that the church communicates the multifaceted wisdom of God, and it says to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is really an amazing statement. I preached on this on our anniversary Sunday back in August. But I want us to remember that what takes place at Tri-City Baptist Church is not just seen here or in Chandler, but we have a testimony that reaches into the heavenlies. And that's what this is telling us, that angelic beings observe what is going on in the church. That the multifaceted wisdom of God, that, that God would save sinners like us. That angels see that, whether it's the, the fallen angels that re- realize the victory that Christ has accomplished, or, or those that, are, that did not sin and they see the amazing mercy of God, that those who had actually disobeyed can be re- redeemed. But whatever the case, we understand that we have a privilege of teaching angels about the wisdom of God in redeeming sinners and making us part of his family, children and heirs of God. And that's what brings Paul to this prayer. I want us to see as well that this prayer is, is selfless in the requests. As I've mentioned, it's the second prayer in the letter. The first one is back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. But both of these prayers are focused on others. The first one, Paul is praying that they would know the Lord intimately. Here he's praying that that knowledge would be applied personally. That there would be an experiential aspect. And and he's concerned for others and their spiritual growth. And that's really the third thing that we see in this, that it's spiritual in the focus. You know, I I actually find it instructive and convicting when I read how Paul is praying here. You know, as I've mentioned, this is a, a letter that was written from prison. This is a prison prayer that Paul is offering. And what is fascinating is what he isn't asking for. He's not focusing on physical needs. I mean, how much of our praying is filled with physical needs? And and that's not wrong. 
we do need to take those things to the Lord. But we shouldn't ignore the spiritual. That's the priority. And that's what Paul is focusing on here. And, and he's, he's praying for their spiritual needs. He's, he's not praying for their comfort, their healing, their circumstances, but for their spiritual growth. And, and I, I think it's important for us, do we pray for the spiritual lives of our children? I mean, we pray for good health, we pray for safety, and we should. We want to have good kids, but are we praying that they will be godly children? I mean, when's the t last time that we prayed personally that God would give us a spirit of wisdom in knowing Him and increase our capacity to understand His love? That's the emphasis of Paul's prayer here. And so with that understanding of the context of Paul's prayer, I want us to look at some of the specifics of this prayer and see how we can be instructed in praying. That as he prays, we can pray. The first thing that he prays for is that they would have a dynamic spiritual life. We see that in verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner person. He's praying for strength in the inner person, that Paul is asking that they will have strength with power. The Greek word that is, is translated might there is the word dunamis. We get our word dynamite or dynamic from that Greek word. So he's praying that they'll have a dynamic spiritual life. I mean, does that describe your spiritual walk this morning? Paul didn't want them to just sputter along in their spiritual life. And neither should we settle for a listless, lackadaisical, lethargic spiritual walk. We need to pray for power. That we can know the joy. Where does that power come from? Well, it's supplied by Christ's riches. The riches of his glory, it says. The Lord will provide according to his glorious riches. Isn't that wonderful that we don't have to come up with the strength on our own? that it's not left up for us to figure out how are we going to do this, but that he provides the strength and, and understanding that, that it's through the fellowship with other believers, it's through the submission to the Holy Spirit that's, that's mentioned in chapter 4, the intimate relationship with Christ that we read about in chapter 5, and then the spiritual armor that's supplied and mentioned in chapter 6, that it's supplied by Christ's riches. And we're strengthened then by the Spirit's power. That is through the Holy Spirit, that, that his might and power come through the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit gives us the strength that we need in our inner person. You know, it's not just the, you know, we often focus on our outward strength. But the work that God is doing is in our inner person, in our heart, in our mind. So even as we age, and sometimes things slow down and break down and wear down, we can be growing stronger spiritually. That our spiritual life ought to become more vibrant as we grow. And, and it's not just a matter of time, but it's applying God's word. Because if we're a believer, understand that when you're tempted to sin, the Holy Spirit is working to provide the necessary strength to fulfill the desires of the spirit rather than the desires of the flesh. So we can resist this flesh by walking in the Spirit. We're strengthened by the Spirit's power. So the first aspect of Paul's prayer for them was a, was a prayer for power, that they would have a dynam dynamic spiritual life. The second aspect is that Christ would be at home in their life. 
And we see that in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell there doesn't refer to the indwelling of Christ that takes place at the moment of salvation. That's already been dealt with in this letter. That, that's not what is in focus here. That's been assumed, that, that the Lord already is indwelling, and that the Holy Spirit lives in their life. Romans 8, 9 says, if, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. The, the idea here is that of being at home, settled down. The, the Greek word is actually a compound word that, that has the idea of taking up permanent residency. You know, there's a difference between a, being a guest in a home and being at home. When, when I was the, the college president, I did a lot of traveling and I stayed in a lot of homes. And it wasn't uncommon for people to say, you know, make yourself at home. But we both knew there were limits to that. that. That they were being kind, they wanted me to be comfortable, but, you know, if I had just gotten up and started rummaging through the refrigerator and saying, you know, I, I want this, I don't really want that, they, they would have probably become a little concerned. You know, started questioning my social awareness. If I had started rearranging the furniture, they would have been very concerned. And if I told them I was running to Sears to get some paint, they'd have probably handed me my suitcase about that time. Why? Because the point was I was a guest. It wasn't my home. That even though they said make yourself at home, there were limits to that. So how do we treat Christ in our lives? Do we allow him to come in and say make yourself at home but don't touch anything? Or is he truly settled down? Are we allowing him to rearrange the furniture? We're going to return to this for our application in a few moments. The third thing I want to see, though, is the prayer is for a prayer for growth in spiritual discernment. It says that you would be rooted and grounded in love. One of the eight ways we grow in our discernment is as we understand the security that we have in Christ alone. That we are accepted in the beloved, not because of what we can do or who we are, but because of who Christ is. And, and that's what's being brought, brought out. That as chapter 2 verse 4 said, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You know, Christ is better at saving than we are at sinning. Because he's able to save to the uttermost those who call upon him. And so our, as we grow in an understanding of that, we grow in spiritual discernment. Discernment is not guaranteed by the length of time that we're saved, but it comes as we practically apply God's word to our lives and as we understand his great love for us. So, so it's an aspect of, of recognizing and being confident in the security of his love and then comprehending the magnitude of his love. That you may be able, verse 18 says, to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. I, I love the paradox that's brought out in those verses. Pray, I'm praying that you will know what is incomprehensible. That you will get a better grasp on the dimensions of his love. How high, how wide, how deep is his love for us. Now, this is not a request that their love for Christ would grow. It's a, it's a request that they would better understand his love for them. 
And that really is the, the paradox that's being brought out. But I, I think Paul is saying, look, when we think we have exhausted the limits of God's love, we're, we're, there's another layer. We can go to an, another level. There, there's another corner that we need to explore because we will never ex- ex- exhaust his love. You know, it's as the, the songwriter spoke of the vast love of God that could we with ink the ocean fill and were the sky of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every person, every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could a scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Saying that we would grasp the width, the height, the depth, the breadth of God's love. That we will pray for spiritual power, a dynamic spiritual life. That we will pray that Christ would be at home and that we would have an experiential knowledge growing in discernment. But the fourth thing that we see then is there, that there would be a, that we'd pray for a demonstration of practical godliness that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That the, the power of di- a dynamic spiritual life, a knowledge of his love, then ought to be displayed in godly living. And so we, he's praying that they will be all that God wants them to be. What a great prayer for us. Pray that we will be what God wants us to be. That we would grow in godliness He who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until it's complete, until the day of Christ. And none of us have arrived or will arrive in this life, but we can be growing in godliness. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we godly? Well, what would that look like realistically? How does that play out in our life practically? And I want us to consider that in the the personal application this morning and going back to that point of Christ being at home in our life. Several years ago, I I became acquainted with a little booklet. It was actually published over 70 years ago. It was a sermon by a Presbyterian pastor, Robert Munger. It's titled, My Heart, Christ's Home. And I personally have found it challenging, convicting, even going back through it, but of, of applying how is God doing at having control of my life? Is he at home? Am I allowing him to paint the walls, to rearrange the furniture, to make the renovations that are necessary? And I'd like to challenge us this morning in considering this. He began by saying the relationship began when Christ entered my heart. In the joy of that newfound relationship, I said to him, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want you to settle down here and be fully at home. And and he seemed glad to come and delighted to be given a place in my ordinary heart. So so I began to show him around. And the question we asked then is, is Christ at home in these rooms? Began in the library of the mind. Said we entered the control center of the home, the study of the mind. And I saw the Lord gaze around quickly. He looked at the books and some pictures that really shouldn't have been there. And I became uncomfortable as his eyes averted from things that he was too pure to behold. Realized the meditations of my heart need to be acceptable in his sight. Oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And I asked him to make the room what it ought to be in. And he told me that he would bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of him as I would allow. He placed the Bible in a prominent place in the, the library of my mind. 
He hung a full-size portrait of himself centrally on the wall in my mind. That my eyes are upon you, Lord. In you I've put my trust. And when my thoughts run to him, there's power, there's purity. As I meditate upon his word day and night, there's strength and cleansing. So is Christ at home in your mind, in your thoughts? From the library of the mind, we move to the dining room of the appetites. He said, I spend a good amount of time in this room seeking to satisfy my wants, my desires. It's an important room of appetites and desires. And he said, some of the favorite dishes consisted of money, academic degrees, stocks, and the side dishes of fame and fortune. But these dishes, while not necessarily wrong, did not appeal to him. The Lord said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he set a table for me, a feast of doing God's will, what flavor it brought, how it satisfied. But we have to examine, is Christ at home in our desires? What is it that we're seeking? Is it the kingdom of God and his righteousness? said we moved from the, the dining room to the living room of fellowship. It was a comfortable, quiet room, cozy. And the Lord commented on how this would be a wonderful room, a wonderful place to meet together and spend time fellowshipping. And he, and he promised that he would be here early every morning so we could start the day together. He said, you know, I found that to be a great encouragement. And each morning I would be strengthened and and encouraged by his love and grace toward me and and it's helped me through the day but little by little the pressures and responsibilities shortened our time and then there were days that i missed and and at first it was just one day or another day and and then we're there were days on end said i remember one morning hurrying past the room and seeing jesus sitting there waiting for me I wanted him to be at home in my life, but I was neglecting him. And it wasn't just that I needed the fellowship with him, but he wanted fellowship with me. He desires that fellowship. Do we leave Christ waiting alone in the living room of our lives? Or is there that growing time of fellowship daily? I said one day the Lord asked if I had a workroom the workroom of service in the house. And he seemed pleased as I, as I showed him what was available. But he asked me, what was I producing that had eternal value? And, and I tried to explain to him. I was limited in my abilities. I really wasn't that good a, cla- a, a craftsman, and I lacked the skill and talents that others had. But he said, would you be willing to allow me to guide your hands? He simply wanted me to be available. He asked if I would give him the talents and allow him to work through me. And the question, what are we producing with our lives for Christ's church and eternal glory? Are we investing our service, our energies for him? He said, then there was one day the Lord asked if I had a, a rec room. So I remember him asking, I really didn't want to have him mention that because there were associations friends activities amusements that that i really wanted to keep for myself 
He asked about joining me and what, what I was doing and where I went, but I knew that he wouldn't approve of my activities. He said, but then neither did I enjoy them, knowing that he wouldn't approve. And I knew that he couldn't be at home unless I gave him my entertainment as well. But he's the one who brings true joy, true happiness, true satisfaction when we seek to glorify him. That we're not walking in the flesh, but seeking to live in the spirit. He said one day, he came home and found the Lord waiting at the door. He made the comment that there was a peculiar odor in the house, and it was coming from a locked closet at the end of the hall. He said, I knew immediately what he was talking about. It was the closet of hidden things. It was, it, it was a closet where I had kept a couple of things, personal things, from my old life. I knew they were dead and rotting, but I loved them and couldn't let go. I struggled seeking to hang on to these things from the old life. And I followed him as he walked down the hall and he pointed to that locked closet and he said, it's in there, something dead. And the battle took place in my mind. I didn't want to give him the key. I'd given him the rest of my home. He could be at home there. I'd allowed him to, to make changes and be at home in those areas, yet I knew that he could never truly be at home with su such corruption hidden in my heart even in a small area, but I faced a battle. I gave him the key, but I said to him, Lord, you have to clean that closet because I have no strength to do it. He said, I know. Give me the key and I'll take care of it for you. And he cleaned the closet, he painted it, he fixed it up. And what victory I experienced to have those dead things out of my life. He said, I, I said at that point, Lord, will you take over the responsibility for my whole house and make the necessary changes like you did to that closet? Because no longer do I want you to be a guest. I want you to be the master. I want you to be at home in my life. Folks, church family, there's no better way for us to live our life than to allow Jesus Christ to truly be at home. None of us come move-in ready. We all have to be changed. That's the process of sanctification. But we have to be willing. So how is it in your life? Is he at home in your mind with your appetites? How's your fellowship with the Lord? How was it last week? Well, it's a busy time of year. Yeah, we get busy. But he's waiting for us. How are we doing? What about our service for him? Are we faithful in serving the Lord? What about our entertainment? Do we give that to him? Or are there hidden areas of our life? Folks, one of our struggles, even in sharing the gospel, and one of my concerns is we can be very familiar with the truth, and it's not hard to convince somebody that they ought to choose heaven over hell. But a lot of people don't want to choose heaven over earth. They want what this world has to offer. As true believers, we're to set our affections on things above, not on things on this earth. So will you allow him to rearrange the furniture in your mind, to change the pictures, 
to put his word at a prominent place, to develop godly appetites and direct your fellowship and service in a way that will honor him. Is Christ pleased with your entertainment? How we spend our free time? Are there secret sins that need to be cleansed and moved? Will you give him the key to that closet? Nobody else knows about them, but he does. And the stench of that death will impact our life. Oh, that we would pray that Christ may dwell, be at home in your heart through faith. Is that where you are this morning? As it says there in this passage, that's one aspect of the prayer. But I think this is where it plays out practically. That as we pray for that strength, as we grow in knowledge, that Christ would be settled down. Is Christ at home? That he may dwell in your heart through faith. So let me conclude with three questions. Is Christ at home in your life? Is he able to rearrange the furniture, paint the walls, change the decor in a way that will honor him? Or do we treat him like a guest? Oh, I'm glad you're here, but don't, don't touch things. That's how I want it. Or is he truly your Savior? Paul's discussed that in chapter 1. We're accepted in the beloved. But is he at home in your life this morning? Let's pray together.